0: good morning. Sometimes it seems like it can be difficult to be a celebrity these days with uh, social media and the immediacy that that provides, you know. Uh, I'm not saying I'm a celebrity, by the way. <laughs> that would be. I don't, I don't think the 10 people that watch us online <laughs> give us sad. Um but anyway, you know, with social media and everything, like everybody's watching what celebrities do or famous people do nowadays. And if they do or say something wrong, you know what happens? They, you know, they these vocal people that are upset with what they say and do, they are are calling for the celebrity to get canceled, right? And they put their full force into making sure that that person that they disagree with or that they didn't like what they said that uh, they're going to have a tough time being marketable to get a job uh, for themselves. And it, so what do the celebrities do? Usually they they decide to f- issue an apology. And a lot of these apologies, they'll, they'll write something out on, like, the Notes app on their phone so they can post it to their social media, or they'll do a video or something like that. But do you know what's wrong with some of these apologies? Is they're not really apologies, right? Um, You know, they're really just kind of sorry that they got caught, and they're just trying to save face and get back in everybody's good graces and everything. Today, we're in our sixth message of our Summer in the Psalms series. This week, we're going to be looking at the Psalm 51, and this psalm was written by somebody who was called out for doing something bad. I really did a couple of things that were really bad. And this person was the most powerful person in the nation of Israel. This is King David. And David was called a man after God's own heart, right? What we're going to read today is something different than what the celebrities do um, with their fake apologies. David sinned, and when he was confronted about it, this psalm is how he responded. Now, you're probably sitting there thinking, "Well, this is all well and good, but what does that have to do with me or anything?" You know, uh, most of us are not celebrities, although some of you might be. I don't know. Um, we're, we're just trying to live our lives the best we can, right? But unfortunately, we still probably find ourselves sinning, doing things that we're not supposed to be doing, not hitting the mark. I mean, it is a, a sinning is an offense to God. But we don't always treat it like it's an offense to God. But what do we do when we get caught in the sin? What happens? Well, we might, you know, fire off a prayer to God, asking his forgiveness, promising that we'll never do it again, only to, you know, fall back into it and do it again, right? Um, It's kind of a non-apology apology. apology. We're we're sorry that we got caught. You know, we'll, we'll do better the next time. Um, but, if we fail we 're just going to pray the same prayer again and 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 we do fail, right? We do stumble into the sin because that 's what happens. So what do we need to do when we fall, when we fail, especially when we knowingly are sinning against God? How can we truly repent and find forgiveness well that 's what we 're going to look at today and we 're going to see how David handled being caught in sin. In Psalm 51. But to help us understand this, we've really got to understand what he did. And we got to go back and see what happened that led David to this point. So to do that, we need to turn to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. And we're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verses 1 through 5. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from the monthly uncleanness. And then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So here we have David, who is the king, man after God's own heart. Instead of going to war, which is what he should have been doing, he stayed at home in Jerusalem. And he decides, you know, I'm going to go take a walk on this beautiful evening, on the balcony, on the rooftop. And there he sees Bathsheba bathing. He has her brought to him. He sleeps with her, and she becomes pregnant. Now, there are so many things that David should not have been doing here. You know, he shouldn't have been, shouldn't have been uh, home. He should have been with his army at war. He shouldn't have been looking at somebody bathing. He shouldn't, shouldn't have lingered, definitely. Definitely should not have slept with her. And now she's pregnant, so what's David do? He's like... I've got a plan. So he brings her husband, Uriah, home. He was fighting the war (laughs) for David. He brings him home, and he's hoping that he will go home and sleep with his wife, and then Uriah would believe that he was the one that got her pregnant. But that doesn't work, right? Because Uriah won't go home because he's got honor. He doesn't feel it, he doesn't feel like. He's any better than any of the other soldiers, and the other soldiers are not able to go home to their wives, and so he doesn't. David hears this, and so he's like, I got a second plan. I'm going to get him drunk, and then he'll go home and sleep with his wife. Well, that, that is also unsuccessful, and so David comes up with a new plan, also not a good one. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. And moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So David's plan was to have the husband killed, murdered, really. And then after her time of mourning, he takes Bathsheba to be his wife. They have got, they have the baby. But the very last verse of this chapter is this. Verse 27 says, But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Prophet Nathan comes to David and starts by telling him, after this, this next chapter, chapter 12, Nathan comes and he's he's he tells David a story story of two men in a town one who's rich the other who's poor poor man had this little ewe lamb that he raised like his own child treated it like his own daughter one day a traveler comes and visits the rich man who had you know flocks of sheep and cattle and instead of using one of them to feed the traveler he goes and steals the little ewe lamb from the poor man and they kill it and eat it for dinner. And here's David's reaction to that, Second Samuel 12, verse 5. It says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, "As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan, he's like, you have fallen into my trap. And he brings down the hammer. Nathan said to David, verse 7, he says, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you as king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David's response to this simply says in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And it's here where we turn to our psalm today, Psalm 51. What we're going to see in this psalm is David seeking both forgiveness from God and seeking transformation by God. And so let's get into this in Psalm 51, verse 1, where we're going to see that unlike the fake apologies, the non-apology apologies that we see, that we talked about, David knows exactly what he did, and he earnestly seeks forgiveness from God. So he starts in verses 1 and 2 by asking for God's mercy. Verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. See, David knows God, right? He is a man after God's own heart. He knows God, but he also knows God's character. He knows of the Lord's unfailing love and great compassion, and he is going to lean on that heavily. David knows that God is not like us who you know, we tend to withhold our forgiveness a lot of times because of a grudge or something like that. I read a story of two sisters named Alice and Mildred who had a 30-year feud. On Mildred's 70th birthday, Alice, who was 75, felt felt a pang of remorse, but it passed. (laughs) Later, though, when she heard that Mildred was ill, she felt like she needed to visit her sister. From her sickbed, Mildred looked sternly at her sister and At last, she said in a faint voice, the doctors say I'm seriously ill, Alice. If I pass away, I want you to know that you're forgiven. But if I pull through, things stay as they are. (laughs) Thankfully, God is not like Mildred. (laughs) He's not going to withhold his forgiveness and mercy because of his unfailing love and great compassion. That's what David's leaning on, not just to ask forgiveness, but cleansing from his sin. He knows as well that he has sinned. In Psalm 51, verse 3, he says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you're judged. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even from the womb, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. So David understands that he's sinned, right? But he says something in verse 4. He says, against you, he's talking to the Lord here. He's like, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, do you think David didn't think that he committed a sin against Bathsheba or Uriah? I don't think so. Uh, But I think he ultimately knows that any sin is an offense against God. That doesn't mean that if you do wrong by someone, you shouldn't seek their forgiveness, because you should. But most importantly, you need to seek the forgiveness of God, asking for his mercy, for his compassion. There's one other thing to note in David's response. He seems to know that his problem ran deeper than just these sins. He says, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. As human beings, we've inherited from Adam and Eve a nature of sin. That's what David's acknowledging here. And he knows that in order to overcome that nature, he's not going to do that on his own. He needs to be transformed by God. Which is what he seeks to do in the next part of the psalm. Pastor Tony Evans tells a story of a man who had a clock hanging on the wall of his office. But the hands on the clock could never seem to keep the right time. Something was always off with the hands. So he put a little sign under it that said, when you look at this clock, please don't blame the hands. The problem is on the inside. And the same is true for us, right? A lot of us are like that clock. The hands just can't seem to keep the right time. Our actions are off track. And so we're, we try to fix the external things. we're not fixing what's in here we're trying to fix the actions but we're not fixing our hearts because we can't fix our hearts that's got to be god jeremiah 17 9 jeremiah writes the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure who can understand it david asked god to transform his heart verse 10 he says create in me a pure heart O god And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Create in me a pure heart. That word create, it's the same word that's used in Genesis 1.1. Same Hebrew word where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Anytime this word is used in the Old Testament, it is used for God when he creates his divine activity. God is the only way in which we are truly going to have a clean heart. It's not just creation, though. It is transformation. Transforms our hearts from a heart of stone that is against the things of God to a heart of flesh, from hearts that long to sin, from hearts that long to sin, to hearts that long for God. David also asked for God to renew a steadfast spirit within him. To be steadfast means to be resolutely firm and unwavering. David wants the Lord to renew within him that unwavering, resolute spirit toward God, which I think we all might ask for something like that. And I don't know if you're like me, there are times that it, it wavers, even if it's just a little bit. But to have that spirit within you that is so fully for God and pointing toward God would be wonderful. Something to be against that sinful nature which is going to fight it. David continues by asking God not to cast from him, the, cast him from the presence of the Lord or to remove his Holy Spirit from him. The removal of God's spirit would be a terrible consequence of his sin. And as one writer puts it, says the presence of the spirit would not only affect a renewal but would also affect a willingness to obey. This would be coupled with a restoration of the joy that was already anticipated in verse 8, where he says, oh, give me back my joy again. Let me rejoice. David seeks transformation, but he also doesn't want to keep it for himself. Verse 13, he says, then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. You ever come across such a good deal that you had to share it with whoever you talk to? You're like, this is so amazing. I've got to have somebody. Air fryers. <laughs> they're the best thing ever. Especially for a single guy that has an apartment now. Man, they're wonderful. They're wonderful. I do my corn dogs so well. It's awesome. That wasn't in here. <laughs> anyway, maybe somebody did some work for you and they went above and beyond. And, you know, they gave you a good rate or something. You want to recommend them to everybody that you know or, or, you know, something where you're not getting anything in return for it, but you're just so impressed, you're so happy with the service that you got, you want to share it with people. And that's kind of what David's saying. Like, if he is transformed like he's asking to be transformed by God, then he's not going to be able to keep from sharing that with everybody. (laughs) Sharing the Lord's ways with everybody who's far from him so that they might turn back to God and follow him. David's committed pretty heinous sins here. I think we would all agree with that. And yet, if the Lord forgives even those, well, of course, then David is going to want others to be able to experience what he has experienced. So he will teach those who sin God's ways. David concludes the psalm by talking about praising God, but not with the annual sacrifice as was, or the animal sacrifice as was the norm. Verse 14 says, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. If David is delivered from his guilt, he will praise God. He won't sacrifice animals because God really doesn't delight in it. And so David brings the only thing that he can, a broken spirit, a contrite heart. His sacrifice is his repentance. The Lord doesn't delight in sacrifices if there is no brokenness for sin. And that makes me think that for many, the sacrificial system had just become like a routine for people, like a coverall. Well, it's time to go and take our lamb or our goat or our birds to be sacrificed today. There's no broken spirit, no contrite heart over what they had done to need the sacrifice. But as Isaiah writes, the ones who are humble and contrite in spirit are the ones on whom the Lord looks with favor. So what happened to David? What was God's decision? What was the aftermath of of Nathan's visit to David? Two things happened. First, the Lord forgave David. Second Samuel twelve thirteen says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, which we already read. And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. David committed adultery and murder. And yet when he was confronted, he, he truly repented toward God. Owning up to his sin, Humbly asking God to forgive him and to cleanse him. And God did just that. That is grace. That is unmerited favor. That's the first thing that happened. The second was that there was a terrible consequence for David's sin. Verse 14. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. And I cannot think of any possible worst consequence for somebody's sin. David prayed and fasted for the child for seven days, but unfortunately he did die. Now I do believe that the Lord took care of that child. David speaks in verse 23 that while the Lord, that he says that the child would not be brought back, but he would go see him in the future. And that leads me to understand that God took that child to heaven. But there are consequences when we sin. And sometimes they are incredibly steep. Even though God forgives our sin fully, a lot of times we still have to deal with the consequences of it. So what do we do when we sin? What do we do when we fall? What do we do when we knowingly sin against the Lord? How can we truly repent? Find forgiveness. Looking at David's response to his sin in Psalm 51, there's four things that I see. The first thing is we need to admit our sin. We've got to own up to it. One thing that we need to do is to not try and sugarcoat sin and be like, well, yeah, I sinned, but it's not that bad. It's not as bad as what this person did. All sin is against God. Not just the bad stuff like murder, adultery, but all sin is against God. And if your heart doesn't break when you sin, then you really need to kind of reorient yourself. And you need to pray that God would show you your sin the same way that he looks at it. And so we need to admit that we've sinned. The second thing we need to do is to pray. We, we ask, we beg God for his forgiveness. We ask, like David, for a clean and pure heart, but we pray. We go to the Lord because he's the only one who's going to be able to forgive us our sins. And we're going to sin. Unfortunately, that's our nature. Like it says, though, in 1 John 1, verse 8, it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us, our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So we admit the sin. We pray. Third thing, we teach. When we're forgiven, we've been given such a gift. And I hope that you want others to know that gift as well. So you want to teach them. You want to share it with them. Like David, we need to go to others, people distant from God, telling them what the Lord has done in our lives so that they might experience the same forgiveness that we have. They might turn to the Lord. The fourth and final thing that we need to do is to just truly repent and to stop sacrificing things that don't really matter. It's kind of that non-apology apology. apology. It's like, Lord, if you'll forgive me, I'll never do this again. Anybody anybody ever said that in their lives? Anybody immediately do it again? (laughs) You say things like, oh, I'll read my Bible more if you, if you get me out of this. I'll pray more. i go to church more. And that lasts for a day or so. And those things are good things. But ultimately, it's just words, right? Repentance is when you do a full 180 turn from your sin, away from your sin. And you're turning toward God. Quit trying to offer anything other than that to God. So we admit our sin, we own up to it, we pray, we teach, we repent. And like we said, we can trust that God is faithful and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. And why would He do that? Because He loves us. He sent His Son Jesus to die for us, for our sin. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2 says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus went to the cross to be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Now, that mean that we keep living in sin, And we take advantage of God's grace. Romans 6 1 through 2 says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't cheapen God's grace by continuing to live in sin. Admit it, pray for the Lord. Pray to the Lord for forgiveness. Help others who are still living in sin and and repent. Do that 180 turn. Christ already paid the price for it once for all. So be free. Live free. You don't have to let that burden of sin weigh you down. Live in the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. I want to close with another passage from Romans 6. It's verses 11 through 13, where it says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. And, you know, I'm, I'm in there with you with needing to hear this, even today. And it's like, there are things that I have continued to fall into. and I'm like, what the heck am I doing? I'm just not, just not turning. I'm, I'm doing the... The non-apology apology. Not turning toward it, not turning away, not turning fully toward God. Where it's like, yeah, but this is kind of fun over here. And it's like, it doesn't matter. Because that's what's better, is with the Lord. Amen? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that you are better. You are absolutely what is best for us. And what you say is best for us is what we need to live in. And I know that I, I, I have, I'm very sure that there are people here today who are dealing with sins. Sins that they may have thought that they'd conquered, but keep popping back up things that Satan whispers in your ear saying, "Ah, you can never get rid of that. You're never going to overcome that. To which we say, yeah, you're right. I can't. But Father, you can You change that heart from a heart of stone. You create in me a clean heart. A heart that is driven to you. You fill us with your Holy Spirit. And you cleanse us, Lord. I pray that you would so help us to live in that reality. Because that is not burdensome. As many people try and make it, it is not. It is freedom. Freedom from the things that keep us down. But Lord, you have set us free. Because like we've said, I think it was last week. Jesus' burden is light. And he will walk alongside us just as he went before us on the cross to take our sin there, to nail it to that cross, and then to leave it there, conquered. Lord, we come to the point in our service where we, we remember what he did on the cross with our time of communion with the bread representing the body that was broken the juice representing the blood that was spilled as he died there and he was buried but then three days later he rose again and now he sits at your right hand Lord advocating for us and we thank you Lord we praise you Lord and it's in his name that I pray Amen.